Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. The word of the Lord. In the uh, late 1800s, a man called Rudyard Kipling, a British guy like myself, wrote a story about a young boy who was found and saved by a she-wolf. And he finds himself up against the rest of the wild animals and the judgment whether he can be initiated into this world, into the wolf pack, and become one of them. And it's actually a bear called Baloo who speaks up on his behalf, saying, I speak for the man-cub, came Baloo's deep voice. Let him run with the pack. I myself will teach him. And of course, you know that that story is Yes, and you've all seen the Disney version, right? Which is a very sentimentalized version of Rudyard Kipling's book. And it's a children's book, of course it is, but Rudyard Kipling was actually fascinated, as was his time, with um, stories of feral children that had been discovered and actually had lived with wild animals. And there's a story of, uh, and these are well-documented accounts, in the 1920s, a man called Reverend Singh, a missionary in India, came across two children, girls, who had been growing up among wolves. And apparently these children walked and ran on all fours. They cuddled and interacted only with each other. They scratched at doors. They ate without their hands. This is sounding like my children. <laughs> they growled like wolves. And even their physical morphology was recorded as being somewhat non-human. They developed very strong jaws. They were biologically human beings. Everything was in them to become a human being, and yet they were not what we would call fully human. They never developed the language to speak. They never, never ever able to form human attachments. And so Kipling was fascinated by this, and what makes us human beings? If what makes us human is not just something inside us that automatically comes into being, what does make us human? There's an ambiguity. And in many senses, you know, this whole thing of becoming human was recognized increasingly to be a socializing thing and enculturating things. In other words, you cannot become 
fully human without other human beings to draw you into the fullness of humanity. And of course, in a way, that's what the church is trying to do. The church, in many ways, is most powerful as a social and enculturating organization. The church is trying its best to get all you guys to become and be formed into the likeness of Christ. The center of the socializing process, the leader of the wolf pack, is Jesus. And the church is forming us, not automatically, not just because we have a biology, not just because we're able to think, but it is deliberately trying to form us into the image of Christ. And Paul puts you know, Jesus right at the center of everything. This is what he said in Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So he's right at the center of it. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body. The body is the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. You're getting the picture? I think so. That in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Sermon over. We're good. We're done. But strangely, I think that's a massive challenge. It's a massive challenge for the church to display and invite and socialize and enculturate us, its people, into the fullness of God. We're often quite good at one part of it, and different churches do some things well, other churches do other things well. But it's really a challenge to really draw us into the fullness. And I want to look at one thing this morning that I think, you know, it sometimes gets neglected in the church. Sometimes we miss it or we forget it, but it's a really important part of what it means to be or to live in the fullness of the image of Christ. And that thing is, and this might surprise you, or maybe not, work. Didn't we just read in that confession that it's not by works? Oh, but didn't it go on and then say that he had prepared us for good works? So which is it? So I want to think a little bit about work. And I want to think about our call as part of our identity, as part of the fullness of God, to impact the world around us, to shape and form it, and to continue the work of creation that our humanity, our identity, is actually that we are called to continue God's work of creation. And I'll explain what, that mean, what I mean by that in a minute. This is what we read in Genesis. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. It's like blue. I'm going to teach mankind how to be man. And what does that mean, that the image of God, that you look like God? Some of you, yes. You're glorious. Others of us, no, not so much. I don't know. Probably it's not about what you look like. Does it mean we have similar characteristics to God? Yeah, somewhat, maybe. Or is this ancient language? Ambassadors in the ancient world were said to come in the image of the king. In other words, they bore the authority of the king to do things in his name. 
But then this is a surprising thing, that Genesis goes straight from that language of image, which you could spend months exploring. It goes straight on, and the very next thing it says, and let them have dominion. Over the sea, over the birds, over the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. How does that sound to you? You like the sound of having dominion? Come on. That's pretty good, isn't it? This uh, state uh, is called Old Dominion. You know why? You don't? (laughs) Because you used to be under the dominion of the king, right? It was a dominion. And as far as I can make it out, it is good to be king. Do you want to be king or queen? You like it? It's good to be king. God has created you and I to have dominion. So we better understand what that means or what that doesn't mean. I mean, I would honestly rather have dominion than not have it, but I I, I don't know. I think that word dominion can often trigger things that we're slightly uncomfortable with as Christians because we're not sure. Are are we supposed to go around sort of, you know, uh, uh, sort of dominating the world? There was a church um, in Charlotte where I've been working on and off, and they said, uh, we want to have dominion. We want to dominate this city. And I was like, really? <laughs> Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I, I don't know. It was uncomfortable. And I think it's uncomfortable because the word dominion touches on power. And we're not quite sure as Christians what to do with power. Is that what Genesis is offering when it says you are to have dominion? Are you to have power in the way that we might understand power? Is that what it means? Well, unsurprisingly, Jesus had a lot to say about power and the world of men and their desire for power and violence in order to achieve power. And he, Jesus, demonstrates decisively a very different kind of power. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, you and me, about power. And Jesus called them to him, the disciples, and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority, or actually that word is very similar to dominion, over them. It shall not be so among you, Oh, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And even as the Son of Man came not to be, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, so now I'm confused. Genesis seems to be saying we're to have dominion. If we're to fulfill this being fully in the image of God, we're to have dominion. And then Jesus comes and he says, you're not to have power. You're not to have power, or at least you're not to have power in the way that the world understands power. He's actually not saying you shouldn't have dominion. He's reframing what it means to have dominion. And the image that Genesis gives us of what dominion is going to look like comes straight away after Genesis 1, in what comes after Genesis 1. Genesis 2, you're brilliant, Bible scholars. (laughs) In Genesis 2, there is an image of what it means to have dominion, and it is the image of being a gardener. How many gardeners do we have here this morning who love gardening? A few. Oh, there's a little boy down there. Not many of us do gardening these days. We're far too cool for that kind of stuff. But 
the archetypal role, the archetypal job, the archetypal work that God gives to man as part of the image of God is to be a gardener. This is what we read. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to kick back, enjoy it, and have a jolly good time. No. To work, and in some translations it's to tend it, and keep it. Genesis 2.15. We've been put into the garden, the creation, to tend and keep. What do those words tend and keep mean? They're difficult words. They're translated. One of those words that in different translations often gets translated differently. In the Hebrew sense of tend, it has this sense of serving it, cultivating it. It has this nuance of to dress, to adorn, to embellish and improve. And then secondly, that word keep is to exercise great care over something for someone else. In the context of Genesis, mankind is watching over the garden so that he can, in a sense, return it to its owner, God, in a good or better condition. And if you read through the New Testament, it's always surprising to me how much Jesus has to say about stewardship. Lots of stuff about money and looking after things and growing them. There were two people walking in a wild forest. And in the middle of the forest, they suddenly came across a beautiful garden with well-ordered flower beds and shrubs and trees. And the first person, overwhelmed by its beauty, turns to the second person and says, isn't God's creation wonderful? And the second person who is in fact the gardener, replies, yes, but you should have seen what the creation was like before I got my hands on it. So let me ask you a question. Genesis 1 through 6, was God's creation finished on day 6? It's a yes, no answer. Well, in one sense, yes. God's work was complete in the sense that the heavens and the earth were created. Everything necessary for life and flourishing, the material world was all there. There was nothing to be added beyond that. It's like that little boy Mowgli. All the raw materials of humanity, if you will, were already in place. But then in John 5, verse 17, Jesus says this, My father is still working, and now I'm also working. So in another sense, no, it is not finished. The work of creation is not finished. And in Genesis 1 and 2, you get this story. The beginning of Genesis, earth is without form and void. Then the Spirit of God moves across the face of the formless void and the chaotic world and rearranges things so that out of that chaos comes order and beauty. And then in chapter 2 of Genesis, God breathes the same Spirit that hovered over the water into mankind and puts the first human beings into a garden and gives them their first job as gardener to continue this work of ordering the creation. That's what gardening is. Taking the earth, the raw materials, and rearranging them so that things that weren't now are. And you say, Matt, what well, I'm not interested in gardening. 
I don't like gardening. I don't want to be a gardener. You're telling me, Matt, this morning I've got to become a gardener? No, of course I'm not. Let's say you are in the medical profession. What is the medical profession if it's not reordering disordered human bodies in order that they might flourish? Or what about architecture? It's ordering the raw materials of the world to provide shelter. Or, or music. It's taking the raw materials of sound and rearranging them into what, for whatever mysterious reasons, creates a sense of beauty and emotion and meaning. In every case, in every work, whatever you do, paid or unpaid work, there is always the opportunity to be ordering things for the sake of human flourishing, for the sake of the good of others and in order to glorify God. It's not exploiting creation for your own good and your own benefit alone. It is not doing things that destroy. It's continuing the work of God's creation in his image. And yet, and yet, as somebody who's hung around the church, I, I feel like, and I've probably been responsible for this as well, is that sometimes I think we can quietly, not intentionally, denigrate work. If you're talking about stories and archetypal stories, every culture carries its sort of, you know, stories that everybody remembers. Does everybody remember the story of Mary and Martha? Yes? Does anybody not know the story of Mary and Martha? Not one single hand. So we all know the story of Mary and Martha. It's an archetypal story. And basically, what we hear repeated again and again is Mary good, Martha bad, right? I mean, not morally good and bad. But what Mary does is right, and what Martha does is wrong. And what does Mary do? She sits at the feet of Jesus, and she contemplates and listens and learns. And what does Martha do? She works. She's running around doing stuff. And whether consciously or unconsciously, it starts to tell this story that work is a necessary evil. Something we have to do, but it would be better if we didn't have to do it so we could spend all our time sitting at Jesus' feet and contemplating him. Now, listen, I think that's a misinterpretation of that story. But we carry those kinds of story in the church. And that's what a friend of mine, I came to the church late, I was 32, and I was in the church where there were numbers of people, sort of my age, who were coming into the church. And I met this guy called Paul Skeeler. Now, Paul was a very gifted business guy. He was in finance, and he was basically had a financial services company, and he invent, invested high net worth individuals' money on their behalf. And so he arrived in the church, and it was, faith was new, and it was all exciting, and you know, I got to know him very well. And then he started what actually I've recognized as a typical wrestle for many uh, business people, is that the church wants them because they have money, and they can give. But beyond that, the church is, I don't know what the right word is, it's not always super clear in expressing to them what role their work might have in this spiritual life that they are now being invited to play a part in. Not quite sure how to explain that to them. And so he, he started to wrestle. 
he started to really struggle because he's really good at reordering finance on behalf of other people and making a ton of money. I mean, he's super good at it. But he just couldn't figure out, how does that fit into this walk with Jesus? And perhaps he's hearing these unconscious, subtle messages, not deliberate, not intentional, that perhaps work is, oh, you know, making money is ah, it's kind of not spiritual, really. So he got cross. He got a bit angry about all that. And he started to disengage from the church, which is, again, a slightly typical story. And he disengaged because first he started to say, well, look, actually, you guys in the church, you talk about engaging with the world, but you religious professionals spend most of your time in churches. And here we are, business people. We're out in the world day by day. We're on the front lines. If you want to think of a missionary or something like that, actually, business people are far better placed than most religious professionals to be undertaking that. Well, that was the first thing. But then the second thing, somehow he be chanced on or began to grasp this idea that actually was rediscovered in the Reformation by a man called Martin Luther. We're all children of the Reformation, whether you know it or not, we are. And he started in an age when there was the spiritual life and spiritual people, the Marys, and then there was the secular and work life, the Marthas. He said, that's not right. That's not scriptural. And he began this thing of learning to recognize that all of life, including daily work, can be understood as spiritual, as a calling from God. And this is what he said. Therefore, I advise, and he's talking to people like me, really, no one to enter religious order or priesthood unless he is forearmed with this knowledge and understands that the work of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks. But all works are measured by God, by faith alone. All work. So what was Paul going to do? He has his financial services company. He's beginning to wrestle with these ideas. And he says, you know what? I don't know what to do. But I, I, let's just do at least this much. I'm going to stop investing my money just with the goal of making more money. You've got to make money. It's a business. But I'm going to turn all our investments to social impact investing. In other words, investing in businesses that would have some positive social impact. I don't care if I lose half my business. I think that's more consistent with what I understand from the Gospels. So he did it. And being Paul, he did it at the perfect time to do it, when social impact investing was just starting to take off in London, and his business flourished and grew, doubled and trebled. So then he started to think, well, maybe this is right. Maybe this is actually you know, part of what it means, part of the identity, part of what it means to run with the wolf pack. Of, you know, it, this is what it is to be a Christian. So he started to get involved in microfinancing in Sierra Leone, and now he has an organization with 200 people working in microfinancing. And he set up a chicken shack in Sierra Leone, you know, like Chick-fil-A or whatever. And he said, I'm doing that because I want my workers, I want an opportunity, because those people who come to work, we're going to disciple them in the chicken shack. And then he just set up a ministry to businessmen in the city of London. Sadly, I don't think he goes to church because he doesn't feel he fits. Isn't that sad? So I get it. We're not all going to be like Paul Skeeler. We don't all have the opportunity 
to take something and do something like Paul. But my question to you this morning is, if part of your identity in Christ is to be a gardener, that your identity, you were created to continue forming and ordering the world for human flourishing, for beauty, to glorify God. If that's true, if Christ has come as the new creation and his spirit is now alive in us, and just as the spirit hovered over the disordered elements of the universe and ordered them, now as people of the spirit, our task is to continue the creation for the glory of God and the flourishing of humankind. If that's all true, then shouldn't we, the church, and I include myself, help people to see that? Shouldn't we talk about work? Shouldn't we be concerned about work? Shouldn't we actually be interested in people's working lives and helping people who are out of work into work and people in work into work that actually fits with the image of God. Andy Crouch, if you ever want to read a really great um, commentator and author on this kind of stuff in a book called Culture and Culture Making, said this, I wonder what we Christians are known for in the world. He wrote this a little while ago. Outside our churches. Are we known as critics, consumers, copiers, condemners condemners of culture? I'm afraid so. Why aren't we known as cultivators? People who tend and nourish what is best in human culture, who do the hard and painstaking work to preserve the best of what people before us have done. Why aren't we known as creators? People who dare to think and do something that's never been thought or done before, something that makes the world more welcoming and thrilling and beautiful. When I hear that, it inspires me. I don't know, does, does that resonate with you at all? That when you think about your work, I mean, I, I just don't mean jobs and paid jobs. I mean, whatever you do in life, to begin to ask God for a vision. And I tell you what, and this I believe with all my heart, I think this is a great time for the church to be thinking about these things again. This is not the first time that the church has ever thought about this stuff. There have been seasons that always have. And I'll tell you why, because the world of work is changing around us incredibly fast. Not just because of the pandemic, but because of AI, artificial intelligence, because of robotics. Your children and their children's children will live in a world of work that is going to be very different. We're in the midst, or maybe at the beginning, or maybe in the middle, certainly not at the end, of another great industrial or actually technological revolution that is going to change and continue to change what it means to work. And that's why we have conversations, whether you like them or not, about universal income. It's a recognition that work is changing. That may be a terrible idea, but it's a recognition that work is changing. And there's an opportunity for us as the church to step into that liminal, ambiguous, not sure how it's all going to work space. To help people, recognizing that rather we would say to somebody who's out of work, don't worry, you're made in the image of God, you're great. That's what we basically say, isn't it? To say, no, because you're made in the image of God, we need to help you find work. Paid or unpaid. I mean, I understand that you need to be paid, but do you know what I mean? That we should be helping people to fulfill the image of God by helping them into work, work that is designed or aimed at least in part towards human flourishing and glorifying God. It is part of our identity. It is not wrong. It's not something we should push aside and say that's not really spiritual. It is. 
So that's it. The church can play a part. This is what we wrote, and I just want to remind us of this. In Genesis 1, it says this, Let us make man, male and female, in our image, after our likeness. And then straight away, let them have dominion. To tend and keep the garden, over the fish of the sea, over the birds, the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. That's a high calling. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work, to tend and keep it. So do you have a vision for your work, whatever it is, that you could become a gardener and fulfill that part of what it means to be made in the image of God? Amen. Let's pray for a moment. So, Father, I want to, um, first of all, thank you for all the women and men here uh, with us this morning who tomorrow will be going and working, whether it's in a job or whether it's in unpaid work, whether it's caring. Lord, I pray that um, as a church we would find some part of our life to wrestle with what that means and what it means to do that as your image, as one made in your image. And I also want to pray for those who found themselves on the outside of any kind of work and who are wrestling with that in themselves and the loss of a sense of purpose or identity. Lord, help us to embrace those people as well. Lord, we want to live into the fullness of your image, not just one part, but the whole thing. So, Lord, that we could run and run with you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.